read through to you, uh, for you then uh, the passage for tonight. We're picking up in verse 15 of Isaiah 22. Um, and I'll read through that and then we'll pray and then we will study. <coughs> Thus says um, Lord, the Lord God of hosts, Come, go to this steward, to Shebna, who is over the household, and say to him, What have you to do here, and whom have you here, that you have cut out here a tomb for yourself? You who cut out a tomb on the height and carved a dwelling for yourself in the rock. Behold, the Lord will hurl you away violently, O you strong men. He will seize firm. Uh, sorry, he will seize firm hold on you and whirl you around and around and throw you like a ball in a, into a wide land. There you shall die and there shall be your glorious chariots, you shame of your master's house. I will thrust you from your office and you will be pulled down from your station. In that day I will call on my servant Eliakim, the son of Hilikiah, uh, and I will clothe him with your robe, and I will bind your sash on him. And I will commit your authority to his hand. And he shall be a father to the inhabitants of Jerusalem and to the house of Judah. And I will place on his shoulder the key of the house of David. He shall open, and none shall shut. And he shall shut, and none shall open. And I will fasten him like a peg in a secure place, and he will become a throne of honor to his father's house. And they will hang on him the whole honor of his father's house, the offspring and issue and every small vessel from the cups to all the flagons. In that day, declares Yahweh of hosts, the peg that was fastened in a secure place will give way and it will be cut down and fall and the load that was on it will be cut off for Yahweh has spoken. Let's pray. Father, I pray that as we study your word tonight, Lord, you would enable me to teach your truth that your spirit who inspired the word would illuminate our hearts. Father, that I would teach what is true and that the truth would impact us and that, Lord, your word would bring transformation. We pray all of this for your glory. Amen. Amen. Okay. Let's get started then. Uh, Shebna, Shebna. Now, last time, as you recall, let's just get ourselves a little bit of context. We ended up last time, um, we were dealing with the Valley of Vision. And in the Valley of Vision is a uh, cryptic reference to Jerusalem. And with all of these judgments against the various nations, we finally, in chapter 22, come to the point where Israel is treated as if it were a foreign nation. That's the whole point of a judgment of Jerusalem coming in the context of the judgment of the nations. The whole point is, is that Israel is viewed as if it were a Gentile nation because they have behaved like one. They've committed idolatry, they've worshipped false gods, and so that is essentially why the Valley of Vision, as it's called, finds itself in this situation. The crucial thing for us to remember by way of context at the end of that previous section is that the judgment in verse 12, in that day the Lord God of hosts for, called for weeping and mourning, for baldness and wearing sackcloth, and behold, joy and gladness, killing oxen and slaughtering sheep, eating flesh and drinking wine, 
let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. And so there is a call to repentance that is ignored, and they want to just rejoice and, and feast and have a great time. And so the conclusion in verse 14, which is where we left it, was, Thus Yahweh of hosts has revealed himself in my ears. Surely this iniquity will not be atoned for you until you die. In other words, this is one of those occasions in Israel's history where a judgment is decreed upon the nation as a whole, here specifically upon Judah and Jerusalem. A judgment is decreed upon, the, upon them, and there will be no forgiveness. Now, we sometimes struggle with this because we're like, well, God can forgive anything. And that is absolutely true. There is nothing that any individual does that God cannot and will not forgive if a person repents. Absolutely not. The Bible is clear on that, Old and New Testament. But as we saw last time, there are several occasions where the nation as a whole crosses a line. And judgment is decreed, and nothing can turn away that judgment. Individuals can still repent. They always will be able to. Individuals will be able to repent. But the nation as a whole are now going to go into judgment as a result of their actions and decisions. This is a clear declaration of the point of no return. Oh gosh, I'm going I'm to get the Latin wrong, but is it Elea? Oh gosh, I won't even get the Latin right, I won't even try. But Julius Caesar, famous, his famous quote, it's translated, the die is cast. And it was when Julius Caesar crossed the Rubicon River, the northern boundary uh, towards Gaul or France in the north. And he broke a Roman law, he was going against the Senate. It, it, was, a, it was a point where he crossed that river where he knew that whatever was going to happen was going to happen. There was a point of no return, there was no turning back. And the difference between Julius Caesar crossing the Rubicon and Israel here, or Judah here, is that for Julius Caesar, it could have still gone one way or another. But for Judah, it was only going to go one way. The, the, the Rubicon had been crossed. The line had been crossed. The, the, they had gone beyond the point of no return. And now there is going to be this definitive judgment. One thing to add to last time that I thought about a bit more subsequently, notice in verse 12 of chapter 22, he said, um, in that day, Yahweh of hosts, or Yahweh Adonai of hosts, called for weeping and mourning. And then prior to that, in verse 8, he has taken away the covering of Judah. In that day, you look to the weapons of the house of forest. Now, as I've been saying throughout Isaiah, in the first five foundational chapters, there was a reference to the day of Yahweh. And for the rest of that section, it said, a shorthand for the day of Yahweh, in that day, in that day, in that day. And every occurrence of um, the phrase, in that day, subsequently, we always find references to the day of the Lord. And the day of the Lord is the final judgment of God. That's, that's, by the way, why I always find it amusing when Christians refer to Sunday as the Lord's Day. What a bizarre thing to do. Nowhere in the Bible is Sunday called the Lord's Day. Nowhere. The only reference in the New Testament to, um, that people try and, and point to is one in Revelation, which is actually an adjective. It's a Lordy Day that John had his revelation on a Lordy Day, uh, a day that was kind of 
of Yahweh, you know. To argue that that means Sunday is, is a circular argument. He, he had his vision on, on, a, on a Lordy day. Well, that's Sunday. How do we know it's Sunday? Because that's when he had his vision. I mean, you just go, you go around in circles. It, it's not, it doesn't say that it's Sunday. And everybody, we have this tradition in our circles often of calling Sunday the Lord's Day. But the Lord's Day literally means the day of the Lord. Which is used consistently in the Old Testament to refer to a day of judgment. And in the New Testament. The, 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 the day of the Lord is the day of judgment. And it's like, you know, when people say to me in our circles, where are you going to, you know, what are you going to be teaching this Lord's Day? And I'm like, well, I'm not, you know, when the Lord's Day comes, I'll be coming with him. <laughs> and that's what I'll be doing on the Lord's Day. But anyway, so the Lord's, the day of the Lord, the Lord's Day, is, is this big, big, is a reference to this, this last final judgment and by implication, the restoration that comes after it. But what I found interesting, and what I kind of, I did reference the, the dilemma, and I kind of skimmed it a little bit. But in verses 8 and verse 12 last time, we had in that day that seemed to be referring to the more immediate judgment of the Babylonian captivity. The Babylonians coming in and taking down Jerusalem. And I've, I've wrestled with it some more now, and this is what I'm going to give you as my conclusion, because it's become relevant for this passage as well. That I do think that in that day is referencing the Lord's day, and it has done right the way through the book of Isaiah. I would love to sit down and look at every reference in the book of Isaiah, but I haven't finished teaching the book yet, so it might be something I can conclude better in a few years' time when we finish and we can look back. But I think for now, my best guess, my best understanding, is that it refers to initially the Lord's Day, and then when we get to the prophecies, to the oracles to the nations, they initially deal with end-time prophecies. So the whole first section is dealing with end-time stuff. And so in that day is, again, referencing the final judgment. Here, in chapter 22, for the first time, I think the first time, the phrase in that day seems to clearly refer to the specific day being referred to in the context, which is the nearer judgment of Judah at the hands of the Babylonians. Why does he make that shift? I think because he's making the point that it is a day of God's judgment. That the phrase is still being used of a day of judgment that will come from which restoration will follow. And so I think that's probably what's being referred to here. So anyway, I'm taking too long on my introduction. The point is, we have a judgment that's been made and the judgment is irrevocable. If individuals repent, if individuals do what's right, there can be no turning of this, okay? There is a final judgment that's been made, and that will happen. Now, verse 15, thus says Yahweh Adonai. Now, we've had this um, phrase earlier, verse 12, Yahweh Adonai of hosts. Uh, thus says Yahweh Adonai of hosts. It is uh, the, f the full name referring to the majesty and the sovereignty of God. And we saw it in verse 12 in the context of God saying to Judah, you should be weeping, you should be mourning, you should be repenting, and you're feasting and drinking. And, and God in all of his might, God over the heavenly host is saying to Judah, you just don't get it. You just don't get that you should be turning and repenting, and you're living your life as if nothing's going to happen, and... And you're, you know, drinking wine, but now there's, gonna, there's this sin that 
this, this idolatry is not going to go unjudged. And so the same phrase, and I think it's really important we note that, the same phrase here is used, and God is telling Isaiah this, come, go to this steward, to Shebna, who is over the whole household, and say to him, what have you to do here, and whom have you here? Right, we'll come to what is said in a minute. Let's, let's just get a few things started first. This is Isaiah's only, only prophecy in the entire 66 chapters. It's the only prophecy to an individual. Jeremiah does it, Ezekiel does it, but Isaiah only does it here. What I find fascinating from, a, from an exegetical perspective is that, that when we have in verse 12, Yahweh Adonai of hosts, you have this mighty, majestic name of God pointing to his sovereignty, to his power, to his might, saying, oh, you nation, you great nation, you should not be doing this, you should be turning, you should be repenting. And, and there's this, this, it's this most majestic of titles. And the same title is used to speak to an individual. I find that fascinating. And I think that repetition, that parallelism cannot be accidental. It's amazing to me that the sovereign God who, who is, you know, you can understand when he's talking to Judah in the context of judging other nations, which is what the other chapters around it are about, that he would speak of himself in such majestic terms. I'm the God that is God over, over Babylon and over Tyre and over Phoenicia and over uh, you know, Syria and Assyria, over Egypt, over all these nations. I am God. I am Yahweh. I am Yahweh the master. I am the one that controls all these. And you can understand that. But then the same name is used in a prophecy over an individual. Now, what does this tell us? Well, I think that's what will become clear as we go through this passage tonight is this, is that the destiny of nations is often dictated by the decisions of individuals. The destiny of nations is often dictated by the decisions of individuals. What one person does, if they have a lot of power and a lot of responsibility, can affect the course of generations. And I know it's not a biblical quote, but as Peter Parker's uncle said to him, with great power comes great responsibility. But it is very much a biblical concept that God is there and he gives us power and responsibility and we're judged according to what we have. In Romans chapters 1 through 3, the whole point of the passage of condemnation is that the more revelation, the more light you have, the more responsibility you have. If you are raised in a Christian home and you reject Christ, the judgment is far greater than for someone who's raised in an atheistic home or a Muslim home. Because there's more responsibility. You've been given more. When much is given, much is expected. And that's just how it is. And so, that's why we're told in Scripture um, that we should not seek to be teachers. I, I don't even joke about this anymore. I used to joke about it a bit previously, but I'm not even joking about it. My advice to anyone who wants to be a pastor is... Is there anything else you can do? I mean, seriously, anything. And 
it's a danger in our circles that, I mean, it's a noble thing. It's a good thing to do. But the responsibility, the responsibility, and you think of the number of people out there who pass the churches, have public ministries, who just teach rank heresy. The judgment upon them is just going to be ridiculous. And I know that any sin that I commit, any mistakes I make, any teaching I get wrong, I know all my sins are covered by the blood of Christ. But that doesn't take away from the responsibility and the burden. And Shebna, getting back to the text, Shebna is one who was over the household. He's over the household. That's a, a weird phrase, but... It, literally over the house. It's the highest office that he could have had next to being king. The highest office. And I think you're going to be familiar with some of this. There's lots of references I could give you. But when Joseph, um, in, in Egypt, you'll know the story of Joseph, I hope. Um, in Genesis 41, verse 37. Don't have to turn there, I'll just read it. This proposal pleased Pharaoh and all his servants. And Pharaoh said to his servants, Can we find a man like this in whom is the Spirit of God? And then Pharaoh said to Joseph, Since God has shown you all this, there is none so discerning and wise as you are. You shall be over my house. The one who is over the house is the one who has responsibility for the king's household. You shall be over my house. And what happens as a result of that? He says, all my people shall order themselves as you command. Only as regards the throne will I be greater than you. Or as Andrew Lloyd Webber put it in the musical, Joseph, Joseph, Pharaoh's number two. That's what the text says in paraphrase, isn't it? That there was nobody of higher authority in Egypt above Joseph other than Pharaoh. He was the second ranked. He was the, the VP, if you like. So when we see Sheba here, oh sorry, Shebna, when we see Shebna here, uh, and we're told he is over the household, then what we see is that Shebna is the second highest in command in Judah. He is the second highest in command. And thus he has huge responsibility. What have you to do here? This is the message to Shebna. What have you to do here? And whom have you here that you have cut out here a tomb for yourself? You who cut out a tomb on the height and carve a dwelling for yourself in the rock. Okay, we're talking sepulchres. We're talking about a burial place. That here is a place where there is a, um, a tomb, as you like, if you like, cut into the rock. It is one that is lofty and high up. The older versions would speak of a lofty sepulchre. Um, and he's basically giving himself prime position for when he dies. The idea is, I am such a great man that when I, am, um, when I die... I will be remembered for generations to come. And people will walk by and they will see up on the rock the place where my body lies and they will remember my greatness. And that's the kind of gist that we're getting here. That's what's being spoken of. And so he is, uh, he is looking to have a, a, 
a burial place that would indicate that he will be well remembered after his death. Now, this is why I um, thought we should perhaps call this message, Isaiah Gets Personal. From the very beginning, Isaiah has railed against those who would be lofty and proud, who would lift themselves up. And he would say that God is the only one who is, should be lifted up, and everybody who lifts themselves up will be brought low. The principle that God opposes the proud and gives grace to the humble, we'll be getting there in First Peter in a few weeks' time in the mornings, but that principle is something that is just everywhere in the book of Isaiah. That Isaiah, it's just one of his most central themes, that God will bring down low. So when Daniel is speaking about Nebuchadnezzar and all the goings on there, when Nebuchadnezzar, who, who has this image put up that everyone must bow and worship of him, he ends up eating grass like a cow when he goes mad. That, that all of that scenario comes on the foundation of this teaching in the book of Isaiah. So what Isaiah is doing here is he's taking the principle and he's making it very individual, very personal, and very specific. What he's essentially saying is, you, Shebna, have lifted yourself up. Now, we've got to be so careful. We have to be so careful. You know, one thing I see amongst some of my peers, I should be careful what I, what I say here, but we live in an era of social media. And it's very easy to become part of the look-at-me generation. And I think that there's, there's much good about it. I mean, social media to me is like a blank sheet of paper. You can write good on it and you can write evil on it. I mean, it's, it, you know, it is what it is. But there are those who, who, who seek to use it to lift themselves up, to glorify themselves. And I know that amongst pastors, I will occasionally see somebody has put together a quote from a very well-known pastor and there's a picture of that pastor preaching and, and uh, there is a, a quote that they've said in one of their sermons below and I know that 99 times out of 100 that pastor has got nothing to do with it, somebody else has just done it and they're in a public figure so I guess it's going to happen, it's not the end of the world. Hopefully what they're saying is good, right? But what I'm seeing more and more is I'm seeing pastors with you know, relatively small churches doing it themselves with quotes from themselves to say, look at me and my clever quote. I've already warned the people who do social media in this church, if you ever do that with me, you're going to be not doing social media anymore. Because there is this danger that we all have where we want to lift ourselves up. We want people to say how great we are. And the more power you have... Sometimes, the harder it is not to do that. It's not, because, because power is it's a bit like money. It's something that you never have enough of. Power, recognition, money, glory. You can never be satisfied when you feed on these things. There you are, there's a good quote. Just don't put, don't put my picture on it. Seriously though, you, 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 won't ever get, you won't ever get satisfied by feeding on these things. When you desire glory and you get glory, what do you want? More glory. When you desire riches and you get riches, what do you want? More riches. 
And so it goes on. And such is the greedy and idolatrous nature of man. And it is interesting that Paul in Colossians links idolatry with greed. The idea is, well, I'm going to turn to these other gods because there's more that I want that I don't have. And so the two are linked together in that we're constantly looking away from God to get things to satisfy us because God isn't satisfying us. That's the root of idolatry, is not being satisfied in God. And so they're seeking um, to glorify themselves. And Shebna, he is the highest ranked person below the king. And he has an opportunity to do so much good. And he's blowing it. Because he's lifting himself up rather than lifting up the people he represents. Somebody once said that the desire to be a politician should disqualify you from politics. I totally agree with that. I think, I think that, you know, we just have to understand that when we take a job that involves the service of other people, it normally comes with power. And you have got to fear the power and desire the service rather than desire the power and fear the service. Whether you're a policeman, whether you're a politician, whether you're a pastor, it's the same. And so this desire to be glorified is the thing that, uh, that Shebna is falling on. Now, this acts then, pardon me, as a warning for us all. Because the response in verse 17 is very strong. Behold, Yahweh. Again, note the personal name of God. It is, it is, it is he as a... As this, this personal God and all that he is and his character, this is what he is going to do. Why? Because this is his nature. What, to, to punish and to hurl and to, 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 to judge? Well, yeah, if necessary. But it's in God's very nature that when people lift themselves up, he's going to bring them down. Why? Because it is essential that he is lifted up because he is the one who is high and lifted up. And as I said this morning in this morning's sermon, and it's nice how they tail end together so often, but it, as I said this morning, it, it's not that God is some megalomaniac saying, you must give me the glory and you can't have any. But rather, God loves us so much that he wants the best for us. And what is the best for us? Glorifying God. If we glorify ourselves, we, we end up miserable, like Shebna. But if we glorify God, that is the greatest joy we can have. And we've got to keep saying this and proclaiming this and believing this, that everything that God has for us is the best. And if we don't agree with that, we're putting ourselves above God. And we need to be careful with that. So, Shebna is going to be judged. The name of God, Yahweh, is used here. Behold, I will hurl you away violently, O you strong man. That, by the way, is um, sarcasm. Used by British people and Bible writers everywhere. Oh, you strong man. Oh, you such a big guy. You and your lofty sepulcher. You know what I'm going to do? I'm just going to kick you out of the country. I'm going to hurl you away. The strong man here is very much uh, an irony. It is, it is sarcasm. And uh, he's saying, I'm going to hurl you away violently. 
um, the, Lord will, the Lord will hold you away violently. He will seize firm hold on you and whirl you around and around and throw you like a ball into a wide land. Isn't that great? What a lovely picture. It, 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 apparently, when I read the commentaries, it, it, it's supposed to, um, in that era, it would have been thought of as a piece of cloth. You know, cloth just kind of rolled into a ball shape. So, you know, try throwing a T-shirt. What do you instinctively do? You wouldn't, you wouldn't have a, a T-shirt all kind of pulled out and then throw it because it's not much good. You would scrunkle it up and then you'd be able to throw it further. That's, that's kind of the picture they have here. I think that the idea of it being whirled round and round, it reminds me of how in the, um, the uh, track and field events, like at the Olympics and stuff, you have the... Uh, um, is it, no, not what shot puts that. It's a hammer when they spin it round and round and round. And vroom, let go. And fluff, off it flies. And that's kind of God throwing him as far away as possible into a wide land. The idea is he's being, he's being cast far away. And then he says, there you shall die, and there shall be your glorious chariots, you shame of your master's house. Okay, so let's just recap all of this. He's built himself an amazing tomb. Because that is how it was seen, he would be seen for all time to be glorious, by having this majestic tomb. To be buried in a majestic tomb was a picture of glory. To die out and to be buried outside of your homeland was considered shameful. You'll see several times references to, even today in the army, they talk about bringing bodies home, you know. It always considered, it's always historically been considered a shame to, to have your body lay in a foreign battlefield. And so he's gone to all this expense and all of his trouble to give himself this, this high station. And God is saying, you know, you're going to die in a foreign land with your, cue sarcasm, glorious chariots. Oh, you and your great power and your great responsibility. You can have your glorious chariots and you're going to die with them outside of the land in shame. And I think the last phrase he, he says to him um, is very important. He says, you shame of your master's house. In other words, you shamed your master. Now, this is a deliberate play on words here. Shebna is number two. So he is bringing shame on the house of the king. But who is the master in the context of the passage? Yahweh Adonai of hosts. That's what Adonai means. It means he's the master. In other words, you've let God down as well. So there's a, there's a double entendre going on there. And so he is going to be thrust down from his office and pulled down from your station. Now, verse 19 by itself would be unclear. It would be unclear as to whether him losing his position is something that happens because he dies or whether he loses his position and then also separately he dies in a foreign land. Okay? But that's now going to become clear. Verse 20. In that day, notice in that day again. This is why I referenced it at the beginning. In that day is clearly not referring to the day of the Lord in this context. And that's why I think he's using a phrase which up until this point he has used of the day of the Lord. He's using that phrase because this will be a day of judgment. He used it in the previous half of the chapter for the day of judgment for Jerusalem at the hands of the Babylonians. And he's using it now to reference an individual's day of judgment. And we 
I think, today do the same as well. So in that day, I will call my servant Eliakim. I think that's how you... Eliakim, I think it is. It's not pronounced how I want to pronounce it. I keep trying to get it right. I did practice before tonight, but I've completely messed it. It's Eliakim, I think. Um, Eliakim. Eliakim. (laughs) get there in the end. Um, The son of Hilkiah. And I will clothe him with your robe, and I will bind him with your uh, your sash on him, and I will commit your authority to his hand. And he shall be a father to the inhabitants of Jerusalem and to the house of Judah. In other words, your role, your responsibility, I'm going to give to him. You're going to lose your position and give it to him. Now again, at this point, it's still not completely clear. Is this going to happen after Shebna dies? Or is this going to happen before he dies? But that's going to become, become clear. Um, but he when he takes the role, is going to be faithful. He's going to be a father to the inhabitants of Jerusalem and to the house of Judah. You see, as, as the one who was over the house, he had a responsibility for those in the house. And he had a responsibility to serve the ones in the house, to be a father to the ones in the house, to Judah, to Jerusalem. And who did he serve? Himself. That's what he did. He served himself. And now he's going to be replaced by someone who will actually serve the people he's supposed to serve. Verse 22. And I will place on his shoulder the key of the house of David. He shall open and none shall shut, and he shall shut and none shall open. Now, some of you will be familiar with this language from the New Testament. In um, Matthew chapter 16, uh, you don't need to turn there, I'll just read it for you briefly. Um, But in Matthew 16, Peter is famously given the keys to the kingdom. Um, He says, I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. So the keys to the kingdom of heaven, the keys to heaven, are given to Peter, and he gets to bind, and he gets to loose. He gets to open, he gets to close. In the same way, here, we have... um, we have, uh, I'm going to get his name wrong again, but Eliakim, um, and he is given the key to the house of David. So in other words, he has authority to open and to close, to make decisions and not decisions. Now what did Peter end up doing? Peter ended up opening the gates of the kingdom to various people groups, to the Jews and to the Samaritans and to the Gentiles. And he was able to open the kingdom to the various groups that wouldn't have otherwise been welcomed in, apart from the Jews. And... So what this is saying, um, not that we're basing this on Peter, rather we should be basing Peter on this, but what it's saying is, is that he has given authority over the house of David, that he will open up and he will shut up. He will let in and he will um, not let in. He has authority of access to the house of David. He has access to the house of David. So if somebody wants to... um, have any dealings with the house of David, he is the one that has that authority. Okay? 
And I will fasten him like a peg in a secure place, and he will become a throne of honor to his father's house. Okay? Now, a peg in a secure place is a weird phrase. Um, some versions say nail. It's kind of more literally a tent peg, but not a tent peg. Uh, tent peg's probably not helpful, is it? Tent peg's what hold, we used to refer to something holding the tent in the ground. Imagine you have a very big tent, like a marquee, like a, a meeting tent. And you have a central pole or a mast going up the middle, right? If they were living in tents and they had these central posts, then they would put a peg in that central post. Why in the central post? Because it's the biggest and strongest. And they'll put a peg in it and their most valuable possessions, they will hang from those pegs. In the same way that if you have a house, um, you know, and you're going to put a some uh, big, I don't know, uh, shelving unit that's going to hold something really heavy. You're going to want to do it in a, in a, 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 a frame that is, that is load-bearing. You, know? you don't want to have it in something that's going to fall down very easily. You want to have it in the strongest part of the house so that it will hold the weight up. You can tell I know nothing about DIY with my, my explanations here, but that, that, you get the idea, right? And so what would happen is that the things of great value... Um, the things of great value would uh, be able to um, be hung up there where they would be safe and where they would be seen. Okay? So, this is where it gets a little trickier. Okay? So, verse 23, I will fasten him like a peg in a secure place. Who's the him? That is um, Eliakim. He's going to be the one who is the peg. And he will become a throne of honor to his father's house. So there will be honor given to him um, and, and to the whole house because of him. And then verse 24, and they, that's the house, will hang on him. There has to be a, um, Eliakim again. The whole honor of his father's house, the offspring and the issue, every small vessel, from the cups to all the flagons. Now, I have looked at far too many commentaries on this particular verse, and virtually none of them agree. There is certainly not a consensus. Some people, at this point, suggest that Eliakim somehow falls that he's given the glory, but then he falls as well. Because in verse 25, in that day, declares Yahweh of hosts, the peg that was fastened in a secure place, that's him, will give way and it will be cut down and fall, and the load that was on it will be cut off, for Yahweh has spoken. So when you read it at face value, it seems to suggest that Eliakim is going to be given this place of responsibility, do a good job, and then he's judged. And all the commentators struggle with this. Some of them go as far as to try and make the last verse refer to Shebna. That Eliakim has been made the, the peg because he had authority. Who had the authority before? That was Shebna. And so that the falling of the peg, the destroying of the peg, the falling down, that, that's Shebna. But the flow of the passage says nothing of Shebna. The flow of the passage is talking about Eliakim as being, as, as being the, the peg. So I don't buy that. And, and I, a couple of the guys that I normally trust came up with that. And I was like, no, 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 that's not right. So I looked around a whole bunch more. And 
there seems to be more who suggest that this is a warning. That Eliakim, he does so well initially and he, he has favor and he is faithful and he does what is good and he does um, a really good job, but then he too succumbs to power. But there's nothing in the text to suggest that. Oh, and by the way, just before I forget, because I did forget, um, a little later in Isaiah, we'll see in chapter uh, Isaiah 36 and Isaiah 37 that we have another reference um, to Eliakim and how he is over the household. And it also says in both of those verses, Isaiah 63 verse 3 and Isaiah 37 verse 2, it says that Eliakim is over the house, he gets that position, and Shebna is the secretary. In other words, Shebna was made number two. And he said, yes, I'm number two. Look at my glory. Here's my big tomb. And then someone, presumably the king, says, not sure I like this attitude. Someone else can have your job and you can be their assistant. That's kind of pretty harsh, isn't it? That's a humiliation to be demoted like that. And so, what with, what with Eliakim? Is verse 25 referencing the fall of Shebna earlier? Is verse 25 referencing Eliakim falling? I don't think it's any of those things. I think, this is, I think in the context of chapter 22, it's abundantly clear. Shebna was unfaithful, and so he was demoted. And ultimately, he's going to end up in a lower role that's going to mean that he's out of the land, and he ends up dying, and that's ironic because he doesn't get to go in the tomb that he's made for himself. Okay? Eliakim takes his place, and Eliakim is faithful, and he is a father, and he does what's right. But he's still judged. In that day, day of judgment, declares Yahweh of hosts, the peg that was fastened, that's him, Eliakim, in a secure place will give way. In other words, the pl where was he fastened? Where's the secure place? That's Jerusalem. And it's going to give way, and it will be cut down, and it will fall. I think the it that will be cut down and fall is not the peg, but the secure place that the peg is put into. In other words, it's Jerusalem that's going to fall. Eliakim's role is going to end because of the coming invasion from Babylon. Why is that relevant? Because that is the personal, specific outworking of the principle of last time that there is judgment coming and nothing can stop it not even you know the unfaithfulness of Israel is summed up in the attitude of Shebna but the faithfulness of Eliakim cannot prevent the judgment that has been decreed isn't that powerful and so as we end this chapter in this passage, I have two conclusions that I want to leave us with. Number one is this. You are astonishingly powerful and important. This is not your, you know, motivational speech. It's, I've not been reading, you know, Joel Osteen or anything. Don't worry about that. It's just simply to say that the degree to which you have interaction with other people, you have responsibility. If you are a parent, you are over a house. If you have responsibility over people under you at work, or if you simply have friends that you interact with, 
co-workers that you work with. Everything that you say and that you do has an impact on other people's lives. You can make a joke about them and you could cut them to pieces in their heart and they could remember that for years. Or you could pick them up and you could lift them up and speak words of encouragement. What we do and what we say and how we live has an impact on those around us. Now, Shebna is an extreme example. He was over the house. He had the authority. He had the keys to the house of David. Nobody went in and out of the royal temple, the king's chambers, without his say-so. He was in charge. He was responsible. Who's got the keys now, by the way? Revelation 3.7, Jesus Christ. Keys of David. He had this huge responsibility, Shebna. And so the judgment was great. He lifted himself up. He used his power to lift himself up. What are you going to do? Are you going to go through life seeking to be validated? Seeking to be honored? Seeking to be cherished? Are you going to want people to recognize the greatness that obviously you have? Do you want them to say, yeah, you? Or are you more bothered that they are valued, that they are loved and cherished, that they are honored? And most importantly of all, what we say and what we do can determine whether people know the gospel of Jesus Christ and whether God is honored, and the lives that we live and the decisions we make affect it. When I see someone who is a Christian backslide and fall away from the faith, my heart doesn't just break for that individual. It breaks for all the Christian friends, all the non-Christian friends who knew them as a Christian, all the people who they had an influence on, and the witness just being destroyed when I see someone fall and stumble into sin, I see the name of God brought down. You see all the people then say, see what those Christians are like? Every one of us has some degree of power and responsibility in our dealings with other people. And Isaiah has been so general, you know, clear, but when he's talking about not being proud, not lifting yourself up, it, it, it has continually been in a nationalistic sense, a glorifying of, of rulers and leaders. And this is so specific with a named individual. Shebna, you had responsibility and you sought to glorify yourself. Anthony, you have responsibility. And you look in the mirror and you say your name and you say, I have responsibility. I have power. I've been given a tongue to speak, words to use. What was it we saw in First Peter this morning? Words and service. The things we say and the things we do. We've got decisions to make and there are consequences of those decisions. And the other thing by way of application, is this. The cutting down of the secure place, the fall of Jerusalem 
even under the watch of faithful Eliakim. Is a reminder to us that sometimes the damage that sin causes cannot be undone. There are sins that you will commit and you can find forgiveness. There is always forgiveness at the cross. If we repent and we turn to Christ, there is forgiveness for all of our sins. I want to be absolutely clear I say that so that nothing else I say will be misconstrued. There is always forgiveness for all of our sins. But those sins have still been done and there are still consequences to those sins. One example would be that the first time you commit a particular sin, it might be hard. If you were raised not to lie, then to tell a barefaced lie, you might feel terribly guilty. But do it all the time, you think nothing of it. If you've been raised to be sexually pure, then it can be, it's a huge deal to stumble the first time. Easier the second time, and the third, and the fourth, and the fifth, and it gets easier and easier and easier. The more you sin, the easier it is to sin. You see, when you break barriers with sin, you can find repentance for those sins, but you've got to rebuild those barriers, which is a lot harder than, than it is to knock them down. And when we commit sins, there are effects on other people around us. It, it, is, it is like an avalanche. It snowballs. If, if I sin against you, and you in response sin, and, and you react in a sinful way, then you may sin against other people. And then they'll sin against other people. And sin spreads, and it spreads, and it spreads. And as Peter says, the only solution is simply not to react. To love those who persecute us. To not respond in like kind, but to be distinctive in being the one that stops this way of behavior. But be very clear on this point. Though God is merciful to forgive us our sins, we don't get to turn back time. We just don't. Moses was forgiven for striking the rock the second time rather than speaking to it. But he still didn't get to go in the promised land. If I were to, um, if I were to commit adultery, God would forgive me that. I could never be a pastor ever again, even if my wife forgave me. There are consequences to sin. Do we understand this? And so this passage is a reminder to us of the responsibility we have and of the consequences of neglecting that responsibility. And I hope and I pray that when we come into his presence, not only do we find forgiveness from sin by being in his presence, or the act of being there indicates that we have, but I pray that he would say, well done, good and faithful servant. That's all we want to hear. You haven't got to glorify yourself. You haven't got to be a big name person. You haven't got to have people think that you're so great. You haven't got, it's not, it's not other people's acknowledgement of you that matters. What matters is that you're faithful 
and you get God's acknowledgement for your faithfulness. That's all that matters. What I think of you, what your friends and your peers think of you, what your spouse thinks of you, it doesn't really matter. What matters is what God thinks of you. So let us determine this day that he will be high and lifted up and we will bow the knee and that he will be glorified and we are of no consequence other than in our service to him. And may he be glorified and may we, and this is lovely how it ties in with this morning, may we by love cover a multitude of sins. May we spread love. May we prevent sin in others by living a holy and godly life. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for your faithfulness to us, your mercy towards us, your kindness towards us. And Lord, we thank you that we have redemption from sin. And Lord, may we not just have forgiveness in our hearts and in our minds, although we rejoice that you do forgive us our sin. But may we understand that in redemption you've set us free from sin and may we choose to walk no longer in it. That we might live lives where we don't cause harm, we don't perpetuate sin and we don't dishonour your name. And Father, we know that one of the easiest ways to do that is by glorifying ourselves, honouring ourselves and being forever conscious of ourselves. May we honour you and glorify you. May we love and honour others, co-heirs of grace. And Father, may we be faithful to the calling by which you've called us. Amen.